Today from the Global Lane, the porous southern border. Could Iranian terrorists easily cross from Mexico and make good on threats to strike America? Anti-Semitism on the rise. The family of one recent victim says this is what hate looks like. Robust Trump economy in 2019. Is more prosperity ahead? And how one popular actress chose a Golden Globe over her unborn child. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Iran has struck back at the United States after the killing of General Qasem Soleimani. The Islamic Republic launched a limited missile strike against two U.S. military bases in Iraq. No Americans were killed, and U.S. officials say Americans are still in danger. But how likely is a terrorist attack from Iranian sleeper agents right here on our home front? Are they already here in the United States? Could they sneak across the border? Earlier, I talked with former Colorado Congressman Tom Tancredo. Mr. Tancredo is an advisory board member of We Build the Wall. Congressman, thank you for joining us. So how secure are our borders, Canada and Mexico? And could Iranian agents get in to attack us? How great is the threat? Well, they are not secure, and Iranian agents can get in, and in fact have gotten in uh, over the course of the last decade or two. Um, Soleimani, uh, who we all know now as the head of the, among other things, the Quds forces in Iran. Quds force is a sort of extra military and in charge of clandestine operations all over the world. And we all know, we've heard about all of the atrocities that they have committed and under his direction against American soldiers and personnel overseas. But something that's been lost, I think, in the discussion, perhaps, is the fact that in 2011, um, the Quds forces under Soleimani contacted and made arrangements with, uh, made, essentially got a contract with the Los Zetas, which is a cartel, a major cartel in Mexico, and very violent group. Um, and the purpose was to help them smuggle people into the United States, uh, which they did, and to perpetrate an act of terror in Washington, D.C., which they did. They, they actually set off a bomb at a restaurant and killed a Saudi diplomat in Washington, D.C. They had plans to do other things there, other embassies there and actually other countries. That happened under the direction of Soleimani, and that was 2011. Believe me, they have been working hard ever since then to get more people into the United States. Indeed, there may very well be sleeper cells here who will could be activated to do uh, well, the horrible things, certainly. They will pay up to $50,000 to a Mexican cartel in order to, to transport certain people into the United States. $50,000. You know, when I think it was one of the mullahs said that we, they have 21 targets in the United States, and the president said, well, that's good. I have 52 in Iran. Um, I assure you that they have to begin thinking about if they do something, you know, what will be the reaction, and are they willing to pay the price? Price would be, of course, to take out their nuclear facilities, to take out the um, production of their ability to produce gasoline, uh, the refineries. Uh, there are all kinds of things that you can do that are far short of having boots on the ground, which we are never going to do, but will certainly paralyze Iran.
And if they're working with these uh, drug cartels in Mexico, what do we do to prevent that and prevent them from getting in? We, the, you know, and this is a private organization called We Build the Wall. US. You should go there. Everybody should go there and look at what we've been able to accomplish and what we're still working on right now. I mean, but we're only a small part of what should be done. We can't, we do not have the, the resources to build uh, the wall on the entire 1,900 miles of border. The, the, the president does and should, in fact, put a great emphasis on getting that done as quickly as possible. Congress will try to stop him. The courts will try to stop him. But it is imperative that we defend those borders. It's idiotic, idiotic to allow open borders when you, when you know that you've got a threat from very violent people. Uh, we've known it. We've found prayer shawls. We've, we've, we found Korans. We found all kinds of things on the border. I've seen it myself on the border. We know it's happening. And, and therefore, I, I mean, honestly, if we don't do everything we can to, to defend those borders, then the blood of people killed in this country will be certainly the responsibility of people in this Congress and anybody who has tried to prevent and to maintain open borders, and to anybody who has maintained, created and maintained sanctuary cities where these people can hide out, can get lost in the crowd, can get driver's licenses, can get access to all kinds of things that allow them to become even more dangerous. All this is happening. People who allow this to, do, to, to happen should be arrested, tried. They are absolutely putting us in, in danger, putting us in great peril, the, every American. Okay, a lot to consider as Iran threatens the United States. Former Congressman Tom Tancredo, advisory board member of We Build the Wall. Thank you for those timely insights, sir. You bet. Thank you for having me on. Tens of thousands of Americans marched through the streets of lower Manhattan this week in solidarity with New York's Jewish community. It comes just days after a crazed man wielding a machete attacked Hasidic Jews celebrating Hanukkah. Doctors say one of the victims, 72-year-old Joseph Newman, experienced brain damage in the attack, and he may never regain consciousness. Newman's family members wanted you to see this photo of him so you would know, quote, what hate looks like. They're asking people to pray for a miracle for Joseph. The Hanukkah incident is just one of about a dozen recent anti-Semitic attacks against Jews in recent weeks. So why is anti-Semitism on the rise in America and elsewhere around the world? And what can be done about it? Well, joining us from our Jerusalem studio is David Rubin. Mr. Rubin is the former mayor of Shiloh, founder and president of Shiloh Israel Children's Fund, and author of the book Trump and the Jews. He's known as the trusted voice of Israel. Why are we seeing a rise in anti-Semitism in America and around the world? Why right now? Well, Gary, it's good to be with you, and uh, we, we have to understand that, number one, uh, Hanukkah, okay, it's a time when Jews are very visible, and, and, and uh, it's also a time when religious passions are aroused, uh, and we, we have to understand certain other things. There's been a radicalization in the African-American community in New York uh, that has been inspired by people like Al Sharpton, 
by, by radicals who, who preach against the Jews and, and try to blame the Jews for every, every problem, every ailment that, uh, that the blacks might have. And, and th this is a serious issue in the African-American community. David, some people on the left would blame President Trump for this. They say it's his pro-Israel policies that are causing this reaction. So what do you think of closer relations between our two countries cause some people to become more extreme and anti-Semitic? Look, I'm, I'm not a knee-jerk, never-Trumper. Uh, it, it disturbs me very much when I hear people immediately blaming President Trump for some, and for something like this, it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, as I, as I laid out very, very clearly in my book, Trump and the Jews, President Trump has been the best president for the Jewish people and the best president for Israel-United States relations. I think that the liberal uh, politicians need to stop pandering to the miscreants and start paying attention a little bit to the victims. You know, I, I know a little bit about being a victim on Hanukkah and except my, my, the terrorist attack that wounded my three-year-old son and me, uh, wounded me in the leg, wounded my, sh my son in the head, uh, that terrorist attack was carried on the, on the last day of Hanukkah. And I, I know that those terrorists are in jail right now. And they'll probably be in jail for the rest of their lives, uh, where they belong, by the way. So you know terrorism firsthand. Changing course a bit here, imagine life is a bit more intense in Israel in the aftermath of the killing of the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani. His successors pledged to target Tel Aviv and Haifa in retaliation. What will this mean? Do you think all-out war if he does that? What do you expect? Well, I think we have to watch it very carefully. Uh, it, you know, you have to understand, Soleimani was the Adolf Eichmann to the Ayatollah Khomeini, okay? Just as Eichmann was the, the to-go man for Adolf Hitler, so, so was Soleimani for the Ayatollah. And we're, we're talking about a pretty evil person here. We're talking about a person who has the blood of hundreds of Americans on his hands. We're talking about the person who brutally oppressed the, the, uh, the Iranian, suppressed the Iranian protests in Iran that, that is still going on. You don't try to stop him thinking, well, are they going to try to hit back? Of course they're going to try to hit back. You have to make it clear to them that it's not worth their while to hit back. And President Trump has done that with his 52 targets that he mentioned. And by the way, when he mentioned those 52 targets in Iran that he is prepared to hit, he was alluding to the 52 American hostages that, that were taken by the Iranians in 1979 during the, the, the weak-kneed Carter administration. And then when President Reagan came in, they were immediately released. I think there's a lesson to be learned there. And finally, on the political front, Prime Minister Netanyahu has requested immunity from prosecution on corruption charges. And what do you think is going to happen with that? The blue and white party, uh, the left of center blue and white party of Benny Gantz, is pushing very hard to... Uh, to, to have a hearing about uh, this immunity request. Uh, I, I think it's just going to be pushed off until after the elections, most likely. And he'll have his day in court, and whether the day in court will be during his term as prime minister or after his term as prime minister, which is what immunity would 
enable, and which is done in many countries, including France. And, and the, you know, so, so you have to pay attention to that. So there will be another election on March 2nd, and I'm hopeful that the results of that election will reflect the right-wing religious majority in Israel, and that the results will be a stable government that could lead Israel for many years to come. Okay, from Jerusalem, David Rubin, former mayor of Shiloh, and the trusted voice of Israel, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Gary. Record highs for Wall Street, unemployment at 50-year lows. Will this year's economy top the economic successes and strength of 2019? Well, here with some insights is Michael Bussler. Dr. Bussler is professor of finance at New Jersey's Stockton University. Dr. Bussler, good to see you again. Tell us, what should we expect? More gains for our 401ks, more jobs, robust economy, or might the economy cool down this year? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's always my pleasure to be here. Um, let me start off by saying the consensus view among economists is that the economy will slow down next year. Nobody's talking recession, but it, they think that the economy will slow down. I don't share that view. I think uh, economic activity will be better than it was in 2019. And I have a number of reasons for that. One, uh, the consumer, who's really been leading uh, economic activity, especially for the last year or two, the consumer is in very good economic shape. Confidence is at or near record highs. Wage gains uh, are growing faster than they have in decades because inflation is under 2%. Uh, the wage increases are real, translate into real increases in purchasing power. Um, so with the consumer uh, leading that, I expect consumption to continue to uh, go up. The business sector lagged a little bit, uh, mostly because of uncertainty. Um, the uncertainty comes from this impeachment nonsense and from the uh, trade war. Well, the impeachment nonsense uh, should get over relatively soon, and we all know how it's going to end up. President Trump will stay in, in, in office. And uh, more importantly, the uh, trade war, uh, President Trump has pretty much won the trade war. Already, we have a new deal with Mexico and Canada, just ratified by the House. We have a new deal with Japan, a new deal with South Korea. India is negotiating with us. Uh, the European Union has pledged to work toward a zero-tariff policy. Uh, we'll have a new agreement with England as soon as they straighten out this Brexit thing. And for the first time since we normalized relations with China, they're negotiating with us. And the first phase of a new deal is probably about two weeks away from being signed. And what's the likelihood of an election year tax cut? What would that do for the economy? First, do you think we're going to have one? And uh, what would it mean? Politically, it will be nearly impossible to get a tax cut uh, through. Um, if President Trump is uh, successful in uh, being reelected in November, uh, and if he can carry on his coattails, the House of Representatives, which is a distinct possibility, and maintain the majority in the Senate that the GOP has, I would look then for the new Congress in 2021 to say, look, the last tax cut worked marvelously. Uh, let's 
take a look at a, um, another tax cut and perhaps in some areas where can, we can improve things uh, further. Let me just add one thing here. There's a misconception going around that the tax cuts added uh, huge amounts to the deficit. And I've seen numbers as high as $1.5 That's absolutely not true. The tax cut did not add one penny to the deficit. Tax revenue in 2018, which is when the tax cut went into effect, was higher than it was in 2017. And tax revenue in 2019, we don't have all the numbers in yet, but it will be higher than it was in 2018. So the tax cut did not cause a decline in tax revenue. The deficit that we're having is all a result of increased government spending. And finally, Democratic presidential candidates aren't giving Donald Trump much credit for this robust economy. Some won't even acknowledge the wages are up about 3.1 percent and that Americans are doing well. So what is a winning approach for the Democrats on the economy for them to take in this election year? They have a very difficult situation. I don't know who exactly they're trying to talk to. I listened to the uh, Democratic debate and I listened to what the candidates are saying. And they're saying that this economy has left people behind and there are people not doing very well in this economy. That also is really not true. Uh, anybody who has any kind of a skill today can get a, a good job. There are seven and a half million job openings today and six million unemployed people. So anybody that has any kind of a skill can get a job today. And anybody that was underemployed because the last decade had such slow economic growth can now get jobs more suited uh, to their qualifications. Their incomes are rising. As you mentioned, uh, wages are, are rising. Um, there's really not much more President Trump can do to make the economy better. I'd like to see the growth rate go up, and I think it will next year, particularly because the Federal Reserve realized they made a big mistake jacking interest rates up so high in 2017 and 18, and they reversed that in 2019. They also uh, tried to reduce their balance sheet by selling bonds, which reduces the money supply. That also was a hindrance to growth. They changed their policy there. Uh, so with all that, I see uh, the economy growing. It's going to be very difficult for the Democrats uh, to run on anything concerning economic issues because everything is doing so well. Well, it's hard to campaign against success, isn't it, Dr. Michael Bussler of Stockton University? As always, we appreciate you, and thanks for sharing those insights. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Look forward to doing it again. The hits just keep coming from Hollywood. This time at the recent Golden Globe Award ceremony as attendees praise the killing of unborn children and what many said was a brilliant and inspirational speech by actress Michelle Williams. See, the Hollywood elite just can't stay away from politics and trying to influence the American culture beyond movies and television. So Williams let everyone know that she wouldn't have received her Golden Globe Award if she had chosen to keep her baby. She said she's grateful for people acknowledging the choices she's made. And I'm also grateful to have lived at a moment in our society where choice exists because as women and as girls, things can happen to our bodies that are not our choice. I've tried my very best to live a life of my own making, not just a series of events that happened to me, but one that I could stand back and look at and recognize my handwriting all over, sometimes 
messy and scrawling, sometimes careful and precise, but one that I had carved with my own hand, and I wouldn't have been able to do this without employing a woman's right to choose. Great job. Applause. I don't think killing an unborn child is something we should applaud, do you? And let's see, Ms. Williams, you say as women and girls, things can happen to your bodies that are not your choice. Hmm, like acne, maybe? Things like that? Sure. But you did have a choice, and you chose to risk pregnancy when you had relations with a man. See, it didn't just happen. It happened as a consequence of an action. You did have a choice before you got pregnant. Understand, folks, what Williams is saying here? I'm not responsible for my actions. This just happened, and I chose abortion so a child wouldn't interfere with my acting career? Great. Well, I hope you enjoy the Golden Globe that your unborn child will never get to see. Unlike Michelle Williams, today a majority of young American females are choosing life over abortion. According to a recent PRRI survey, less than half of Generation Zers, 47%, and only 41% of millennials support abortion. Modern technology, 3 and 4D ultrasound imaging may be one of the reasons. Did you know that modern technology shows a baby's heart begins to beat about three weeks after conception and can actually be detected at about two and a half to three weeks after that? Well, that's why so many states are now passing so-called heartbeat bills, disallowing abortion after a baby's heartbeat is detected. Folks, modern technology dispels that old argument that a two-month-old baby in the womb is nothing more than a bunch of tissue. That argument is no longer valid. And think about this. If a person is considered dead once their heart stops beating, shouldn't a child in the womb be considered alive once a heart starts beating? We're told in the book of Psalms, chapter 127, verse 3, that children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Yes, sometimes babies are unplanned, but they're always conceived after we've made a choice. Inconvenient or not, let's choose life and view all children as a reward, a blessing, and a gift from God. Well, that's it for today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.